Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hello and welcome to episode 221 of What Most People Think and welcome to a new dawn of this show really. Now there is going to be, as I've sort of teased before, advertising, but not yet because I know a lot of you guys, you listened to this for four years without advertising, so I'm just going to gently ease it in. I don't like that phrase already, but I didn't want to do one right at the beginning of the show because you might have thought it was a different podcast if you're suddenly going, well, why... Why are they talking about tenor man pads or something like that? But I'm going to, so there'll be revenue from the podcast. I'm going to use it to invest back in the show. I'm going to invest in a new pop shield, which I think that they need to get a different name for that because it does sound too much like hardware on a porn film set, doesn't it? A pop shield. And what an incredible point to bring in this week's guest, Tom Walker, a.k.a. Jonathan Pye. Pop shield, is that where your brain went? I love the fact that you think when you do start advertising, the, the brand that is going to be particularly <laughs> right for your podcast is Tenor Man Pads, which I was thinking, I mean, a Tenor Man Pad is pretty much the same as a Pop Shield. There's something there. <laughs> One of those little those little offshoot brands, doesn't it? Our new brand, Pop Shields, just a bit lighter. They fit. Yeah, Tenor Pop Shields. Fit comfortably in your pocket. They fit between the Y front and the jeans. Like they're invisible. See, what you've done here, Jeff, is really interesting as well. Is clearly you are being sponsored by Tenor Man Pads, but what you've got to do is you've got to slip the advert in so that your your audience don't even know they're being advertised at. But what do they retail at, Jeff? I think that you're giving me a lot more credit than my, my intelligence uh, merits here. And I really appreciate you because we're, we're recording this on Tuesday lunchtime and you're coming uh, sort of hot on the heels of doing uh, Jeremy Vine this morning, obviously a show that I do. And one of the things that I love about doing Jeremy Vine is the mad bastard callers you get. And I was on there recently and they were talking about kids vaping, vaping in school toilets. And there's one woman rang in I do get the impression that a lot of people are just on their own and, and a bit senior. So she just, she rang in and she said, yo, when my kids went to school, they were doing a lot worse than vaping in the toilet. So Jeremy, sometimes he's quite a bit mischievous. He said, okay, what were they doing? She said they were smoking, they were doing weed. And then I think Jeremy, and I don't know if he just saw the comic potential in this, he went, what else were they doing, Muriel? You know, just to see what, what more <laughs> depraved stuff they were doing. And she said they were doing they were doing pills. They were doing pills. They were snorting. And I just thought, please let this woman keep talking because it feels like she's going to go to sort of next level kind of like Caligula, like last days of Rome style yeah. depravity. So I do it to talk about politics, but mainly to see what nutters phone in as well. How, how was it? Was it crazy? It can be. I've never done the Jeremy Vine before. I did it when it was the right stuff. I did that a couple of times. But basically, I'm on the junket. I'm on the circuit right now, plugging. That's why I'm here, Jeff. Let's be honest. Uh, but, you, you know, um, plugging a new show. So it was nice. And I think it's the first time I've ever been on a panel 
going through the papers. It's money for old rope, isn't it, really? There is a big industry of talking about stuff, the talking about stuff circuit. I was talking about stuff last night on Talk TV, and there, there is this interesting, because I like to try and bring a bit of humour to things, and there, but there's certain subjects, and particularly at this point in time, where you go, I'm not going to be making any jokes I'm going to sound like the Lib Dem spokesperson for Middle Eastern affairs. I'm going to say something so utterly anodyne. Yeah. We will be talking about coming up in the show. I'm going to talk about more specifically, you know, what it's been like, I suppose, for the Jewish community in Britain. We're also going to talk about a subject that I think has been underreported here is this Aussie referendum, which was to do with recognition of the sort of Aboriginal inhabitants of Australia and then also this idea of giving them a sort of unelected body within Australian politics and that was a resounding no to that. I think that's an interesting thing to get into. For the Patreon only, now the Patreon only, this is the one way you can still get the show without adverts is to join the Patreon, just go to Patreon, search Jeff Norcott or what most people think and we'll have an extra subject which is the SNP conference. Me and Tom are going to have a quick chat about that. And then for everybody else, the last subject will be Richard Curtis, who I'm happy, spoiler alert to me, has shamefully apologised for some of his films in the past. His daughter interviewed him on stage at Cheltenham Literary Festival, basically called him out for all his problematic stuff. Dad, you know, that was a bit problematic. This was a bit problematic. I was like, yeah, you know what those problematic films did? They paid for you to go to private school, love. (laughs) (laughs) So we will get on to talking about all that as the show goes on. So new patrons, as I say, you get the advantage of having the show ad-free. You get a bit early and you get an extra bonus section. So what I'm going to do is, I know some of you, let's be honest, the more tenor man pad among you won't be the most tech savvy. Some of you, it might take a while to migrate over. So I'm going to continue posting just a good old fashioned MP3 on the Patreon site until we're all safely ensconced where we need to be. So we're going to be working out how to deliver the podcast to you. It might be that you need to go to a slightly different app that you used before. If you use one of these ones like pod bastard or something that nobody else uses you might have to go on spotify or itunes i know you're a red pill guy and you're off the grid but i'm afraid if you want to get it in your device it might be you have to go to a more mainstream podcast provider and as you'll know Tommy's when we welcome new patrons we insult their names so we've got two new vips here rob martin sounds like he played rugby in the 90s doesn't he or it could be the real name of like quite a cool sounding pop star Oh, right, right. Like, Glitter was Paul Gadd. I'm not saying that your mate here is, is Glitter-like, but... Uh, so you think Rob Martin might be Shakira? There you go. Let's go with Shakira. It's a one-namer, isn't it? It's definitely a one-namer. Yeah. We've also got Sean Barron, which I always, I think you're onto something here. I think Sean Barron was like a, a sort of 70s glam rock guy who now runs a bike shop, weirdly. I was going to say laundrette, but maybe they're both. <laughs> with a really terrible pun it's hairdressers and laundrettes that do the terrible puns like curl up and die if you're a hairdresser is is the classic one yeah i mean basically there's going to be a pause here for about 10 minutes while i think of one well no this is a good one for people to email in what most people think uk at gmail.com i know that there are some very funny names of hairdressers but if if there are any funny ones for laundrettes have i got this wrong do email in so we've got those two guys that have joined the patreon we've got beth roberts Beth Roberts, you just sound like a, a senior lecturer. You know, one of those lecturers at a university that gets in trouble with the Telegraph, Dr. Beth Roberts, yeah. was slammed by the church. For saying something reasonable. Well, it's you know, this is why I've got you on top. Unreasonably reasonable. This is why I have to have lefties on for balance, you see. 
Andrew, we've got just Andrew, a one-namer, so I have to presume that Andrew is working in some highly left-wing institution. He's probably assistant to Dr. Beth Roberts. Probably, and let's be honest, his name is not Andrew. If, you, if you're just <laughs> saying, that, yeah, it could be anything. Or it could be like he's one of these pop stars with a single name, whereas actually his real name is something really sexy, like Electric Boogeyman. So it could actually be the actual Andrew. Well, Prince Andrew. Or it could be, it could be. Could be his royal highness. Oh, you're not allowed to say that anymore. Political correctness gone wrong. <laughs> Too far. <laughs> We've got Lisa, Lisa, Ramsey Blythe. Lisa Ramsey Blythe. That just sounds like, I don't know, it just sounds like you are the great granddaughter of a historical figure that's got a very different way politically to your family ancestrally. So you own bad stuff, you owned plantations, but here you are now getting arrested for taking a dump on the cenotaph. There's something quite refreshing about someone with a double barrel name who still uses that double barrel name because most people, you know, spend a lot of time trying to sort of waft away any privilege they may have. You know, I was privately educated, but it was a scholarship. I mean, we did have money, but grandpa lost it on the roulette wheel. Whereas if you're (laughs) still using your double barrels, I sort of automatically hate you, but I also respect your balls. Well, there's the other thing as well, though, is just modern couples where actually the husband just hasn't had the balls to say. He's been well and truly cucked. Yeah. Yeah. We'll we'll have your surname first so that we end on the proper surname. Yeah, They are coming for this tradition of the woman taking the man's name, and in particular, the child taking the man's surname. I was trying to think, like, why did that come into being? And I think maybe it's because some men have such a poor level of investment in being a father in the first place. It was just like, look, if I give it your name, will you please look at it? Yeah, at least look at it. All right, the main talking point, our super patron, David Domain, who picks up on things from previous weeks, shows. So what we were talking about, so we were talking about deliberate mistakes, which are left in to check if people are paying attention. I had one in the audio book, which it turned out. So I said, oh, who spotted the deliberate mistake in my audio book? And what I got was a deluge of other mistakes I wasn't aware was there. Which is quite humbling. And then the one mistake I I thought was left in there had actually been taken out because it was such a bad error. But anyway, these things have a name. A fictitious entry is the term for deliberate mistakes in atlases, dictionaries, encyclopedias to detect copyright breaches. Good phrase, right? Fictitious entry. I mean, maybe my brain is in a grotty place today, but fictitious entry does sound like a category on Pornhub. The AA Road Atlas calling the Pennine Summit of the M62 Saddleworth is actually called Windy Hill. Windy Hill. Uh, so, oh come on I, look, if I've got that kind of brain on I cannot be expected to read the words Windy Hill and not laugh like a kid at the back of GCSE science okay thank you and a fuck you I'm just going to say thank you to the England fans who booed Jordan Henderson at the recent England game against Australia now I don't generally like to hear anybody get. it's not a great sound booing isn't it it's quite a primitive thing to do but Jordan Henderson was somebody, who, one of these footballers who sort of wore all the right flags. He wore the rainbow laces. And then the moment the Saudi money came along, off he went to an oppressive regime, which uh, it's not a rainbow laces sort of regime, is it? And I just feel like there has to be some sort of consequence for that. Now, some of my mates would say to me, oh, well, it was better that he used his platform to say something. But if what that something was ultimately turned out to be meaningless... A little bit of light booing. It's not a problem, is it, Tom? People have been booed on a pitch for far worse, right? I mean, we're mm. all hypocrites, but that is sort of particularly hypocritical, I think. 
I mean, you're talking to the wrong person. This is technically a sporting question, but yeah, they're absolutely right. You're an arsehole if you purport to, uh, you know, be socially progressive. But I mean, we've all got a price. I mean, I bet they're paying well. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, we've all got a price, but yeah. he probably deserved the boo. Well, I mean, it might just be that I, I'm jealous because I haven't had the opportunity to be hypocritical on that level. And some people may be listening to this podcast and thinking, oh, I seem to remember a lot of your back catalogue, Norcott, where you made great play of being the only podcast that didn't have advertising on. Well, you know what? Things move on. The only thing is about scale to a point. And and some of my mates who defend footballers, there was this thing, this argument, oh, they're just working class lads trying to make a few, Bob. Absolutely not. The moment you sign your first professional contract with a premiership club, you are minted for life. So if there's one thing that money should be able to buy you, it's the right to not be a hypocrite. I'm not in a financial position to not be a hypocrite. And there's further for me to go in terms of, shameless selling out trust me i think you're absolutely right life is a series of limited choices but if you've got money it's much easier to live by your morals but if you can't afford to um feed yourself then you have to go where the money is i'm afraid but he is not in that position so he should have thought differently we're gonna do the fuck you now i'd like to do a fuck you to um my immune system as i hit 46. I am currently careering from one low-level virus into another. You know how some people look back 10 years because they want to remember what their youth felt like. I look back to um, July. I look at July and I go, look at that guy. That guy was winning at life. He had a suntan. He actually didn't wake up and just make a noise, like a sad whimpering noise. I made a noise like that the other day and my son was standing by the bed. He didn't realise I was there. And I really hope this isn't his first memory. But I opened my eyes and I went, oh. And then he went, Daddy? (laughs) 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 Okay, we're going to get our teeth into the first couple of big subjects this week, which is uh, the closure of uh, Jewish schools in North London and beyond, and also the Australian yes-no referendum. I mean, this isn't something that necessarily we're going to spend loads of time on, but there was this issue towards the back end of last week whereby people in the Jewish community in Britain were starting to feel unsafe, you know, to basically go out as their true identity. And and I suppose one of the things I was thinking, Tom, is is culturally, there has been this sort of permissive environment for anti-Semitism in certain areas of always the far right. And then recently the far left have gone, oh, we'll have some of that as well. You know, they've sort of come into the marketplace as disruptors, I think one of the things that people often forget is just how small the Jewish community is in Britain and how vulnerable you can feel. We're talking, what is it, a quarter of a million people? Are you asking me that stat? It was a rhetorical, yes. I mean, a quarter. Of, so we're talking, I mean, if you look at like sort of net migration figures over the last 10 years, we're talking around about a number that's equivalent to the number of people that arrive in every year and we'll be doing so for the next few years. And, you know, that pressure to say something on social media, which I think is the worst place. One thing I did do was sort of check in with uh, a couple of Jewish mates, that's a real thing that you can do rather than just make some statement on social media. Because one of the weird things about talking on Twitter is everyone ends up sounding like the UN spokesman for something. And that's a very strange thing for just ordinary humans to do, isn't it? Well, by virtue of it, you sound like an expert because you're putting across an opinion and you're kind of setting it in stone because it's written and it's really complicated. So 
I haven't seen many people on Twitter who is an expert when it comes to the history of the region or the history of the Jewish people or the difference between sort of Jewishness and sort of Israel. But it's one of those kind of weird things, the anti-Semitism. And it's weird that we kind of, we've got a word for anti-Semitism and it feels like it's separate from racism, which yeah. is obviously wrong, I think. It's one of those, I think we still have a little bit of a blind spot when it comes to anti-Semitism. We, we, we still don't quite always recognise those kind of those tropes in the way that we would different types of kind of racism. I mean, I was thinking the other day about this, this Leonard Bernstein biopic that's coming out and uh, Bradley Cooper. I mean, I personally, I don't think many people would have a problem with a non-Jewish person playing a Jewish person if kind of the role isn't about their Jewishness, right? I think that's probably mm. safe to say. But Bradley, you can't stick a big honking nose on and not expect that because that is playing in to a stereotype, right? And and the fact that that blind spot was even kind of there, it was like, dude, what are you doing? Didn't the family of Bernstein say that they were okay with it? I mean, I guess that doesn't tell the whole story. I just thought I was surprised that no one hadn't kind of picked up on that. And of course, it's, I know quite a few Jewish people are like, oh, it doesn't bother me. But there is still that trope there. No one would conceive of a white person blacking up to play Othello now, right? Okay, well, mm. yeah, 40 yeah, years right. ago, Olivier was Oscar-nommed for it, right? But I still think that there is sort of that blind spot. There is sort of some way to go. Yeah, if there was a sequel to Gandhi, I don't think Ben Kingsley would be doing it this time round. I think that that is... I mean, a sequel to Gandhi is just... That's not going to happen. But uh, he is half Indian, Kingsley. So there is sort of that inroad. Yeah, maybe the bigger problem is just the idea of a sequel to Gandhi, like just a really terrible sequel that was really a cashier. And it'd be like, you know, sort of like E.T., where you've got, look, the original was so great. You can only really sort of stamp on the reputation. I mean, I've often thought with E.T., you go, well, at some point they're going to think about doing it. But E.T. coming back as like a middle-aged E.T., I'm not sure. A CGI middle-aged E.T. Yes, it would be ghastly. Yeah, and then it being really weird between him and Elliot because, like, they're going, well, that was a long time ago. I've thought about it a lot, but now you're here again. I've kind of got a wife and kids now, mate. It messed me up. I did a lot of fentanyl in my 20s because of <laughs> I didn't know what I'd seen and what I hadn't seen. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Getting back to, you know, how it feels for the Jewish community at the moment. I would hope that most people would say, well, at the point where schools are getting shut i would hope that just everyone could go well that's fucked up like that is that's not where we want to be um, in this country and i'm not the kind of guy thomas you might expect to check in with people to say how's it going mate you know i feel weird about doing that but there was one friend in particular and he and his family are jewish and i rang him up 
and he was a bit cautious, like, because I don't ring him that often. And he said, are you all right? I was like, yeah, yeah. And I didn't know how to say it. He goes, are you checking in with me? Because obviously he's had a lot of these phone calls. And I was like, yes, is that all, all right? And I got very English and white and uptight about the whole thing. And also, is that sort of slightly anti-Semitic for me to do that? You know, when you start second guessing yourself, kind of going, well, because you're Jewish, so I should ask. You know what I mean? When you're not really sure how to behave. I felt awkward on several levels about it. And then effectively, when you do that, you're sort of making it about yourself. He said to me, he goes, if you are checking in on me, then maybe things are bad. And I thought, oh, great, brilliant. I tried to check in and do the conscientious thing. And then he thought, well, this guy rarely shows any compassion. Now I'm genuinely worried. But look, I just want to say it might sound a massive platitude, but I understand the people in the Jewish community are feeling... Yeah, you're just feeling, you know, in some cases, particularly in North London, very alone. I just and also I think it's not just also about checking in; it's also about kind of understanding something. Where obviously we feel like we have skin in the game because it's sort of our planet, and it's a massive geopolitical moment. And watching anything horrific, whether you are associated with that culture or with that religion, it's still horrible. But you don't sort of technically have skin in the game, and it's kind of just sometimes good to check in with someone and go, what's your opinion on this? Mm. Because you've got more skin in the game than I have. And I'm and, and there is, not always, but generally, someone who has a better or a, a, a lived experience that's more ingrained in it is probably better informed than you are. Yeah. So it's not always just about like checking in from a, come on, man, mental health's important kind of way. It's just like inform yourself by talking to other people who might know a little bit better than you. It's not to say they'll always be right. Okay, we're going to talk about the recent uh, Aussie referendum now. And this didn't really hit the British news cycle that much until it was concluded, because I think they all thought it was going to go one way. And it was a yes-no vote on the idea that the recognition of... Uh, what's the what's the phrase, Tom? Is it First Nationers or First People? I think it's First People, isn't it? It was going to be enshrined in the Australian Constitution, recognising that the Aboriginal and the people from the area were there for 65,000 years before white settlers. But then also attached to this was the idea that there would be a a sort of non-elected body that would be there to sort of advise governments. And the campaign started with a fairly healthy lead for yes, didn't it? I mean, it was started with like a 70%. I think it was nearly 70%. Yeah. 70%, right? And then as the polls came in, it was a 60-40 win for no. And it, there's so many parallels to this with Brexit. I mean, not least the way that that vote is interpreted. And I'm sure we'll get onto what people think that says about Australian society. But it was also, it was brought about by the sitting government. So therefore they had the budget to spend on it. All the big sort of virtue signaling corporations were getting behind yes and making it seem like a sort of natural moral decision the most of the high profile athletes were coming out in favor and of course there was that standard thing that happens in big elections or referendums like this that i think a a very well-known tv personality said that anyone that voted no is either a dinosaur or a dickhead yep a dinosaur or a dickhead (laughs) i mean there's a nice sort of aussie black and whiteness there you just wanted two things mate yeah you're either a dinosaur or dickhead and then so there's been quite a big fallout there i mean what's interesting is that the 
yes vote was supported by 59% of Indigenous people. So obviously that's a majority within that community, but it's perhaps not as high as you might instinctively think that it might be. And there was also a no movement which was spearheaded by an Aboriginal senator, Lydia Thorpe, and it just wasn't as clear cut. So is this another example, Tom, where the sort of liberal establishment have kind of just been a bit complacent when taking on what would seem to be a progressive issue? Yeah, I mean... There's a couple of things you've said there that are absolutely right. I mean, I think the campaign, particularly the Yes campaign, it was a virtue signalling campaign. It was about morals rather than practicalities. That's not the way to win a referendum. Also, the polls were wrong because it was a moral question. And when you're asked on the street how you're thinking of voting, people lie. They don't lie in exit polls. and They wait till they get in the booth because if they're being accused of being a dinosaur or a dickhead, they don't actually tell the truth when they're being asked the question. They just wait Uh, in in the voting booth, right? So that's why that happened. I mean, it was an appallingly run campaign. And that's not to say that there wasn't some really nasty rhetoric from the no campaign, but it wasn't explained to people what it was because the people that called for the campaign thought it was a fait accompli because they thought they were on the right side of history. And I happen to think that they are. I think it was a reasonable proposition to give to the country. I mean, you say it was sort of an unelected body. Yeah, that that was possibly problematic because you're kind of dividing people by race, which is how sort of the no campaign sort of kept their moral head above water. That was their kind of argument. But you see, you had these financial institutions and sports people just kind of going, you got to vote this way. And you go, I bet our friend Jordan Henderson was down there with the right laces on, wasn't he? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, when will people learn that normal working people who perhaps aren't as well educated, and that's not to say that they're Thick people voted that way, but there are different. You could just say thick, man. You know, no, 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 no. It really is important though, because actually, it, it was divided really on kind of liberal, highly educated people almost across the board, hmm. and they were always going to vote yes, right? And the campaign seemed to be aimed at them. And you go, no, it's the people that are on the fence that you've got to persuade. Yeah, yeah. and it's exactly what happened with Brexit, and, and exactly the same thing. Like Cameron called it very early into his majority because he just wanted to get it out of the way because the answer was obvious. And that's exactly what their prime minister did. It's like, get this one out of the way because it will be an easy win. And you go, no, you've got to work. You've got to persuade people. I think that it had um, one of those slogans that can carry the day. Obviously, you know, Trump had Make America Great Again, MAGA, right? It was snappy. Mm-hmm. Brexit had Take Back Control. And one of the slogans coming out of the Aussie referendum was, don't know, vote no. I mean, it's just so brilliantly Aussie about that. Yeah. You don't know, yeah. you vote no. And also, don't worry if you don't know. Don't bother informing yourself. Just vote no. And what I loved about the Brexit one was Take Back Control or kind of better off in just so non-committal well i I think that there is some polling that suggests that the more people read about this plan the more likely they were to swing towards no because some of the plans were a bit abstract and indistinct i mean it it probably like you say became a moral crusade was like that was exactly the problem it wasn't clear the more you read into it you go so so sorry what so this is what and it was sort of this sort of well it's a moral you go, no, what, what is this practically? And yeah, what's the plan here? Yeah, you, you just they put people at a moral crossroads. I suppose what they could have said to extend the don't know, vote no, they could have said, do know, don't go, you know, <laughs> to reduce the turnout. They could have had a whole string of outcomes which helped the electoral outcome they were looking for. 
in Australia, you've got to vote, you see. It's compulsory. So you had to vote. Well, no, but that's interesting because then that suggests that if you're going to change things, you better come with a good fucking plan. So if you're compelling people to get out on the streets, you really have to have all your ducks in a row. And if your ducks aren't in a row, don't go. We just carry on with Aussie slogans like this. All right, we're just going to hype some stuff, me and Tom. I'm just going to say first, thank you for everybody leaving book reviews on Amazon and Goodreads. It all helps. In terms of the uh, autumn leg of the tour, most of them are sold out, really, apart from Lime Regis, the fucking hipsters in Lime Regis. They buy late, Tom. They just buy late. They just mosey on up. It does nothing for my blood pressure. It's a long way to go to just put it to faith that your weird little people are going to come out of your little caves of Lyme Regis. Is it got caves? I don't know. Lyme Regis is beautiful. Yeah, but they don't really want outsiders in. Uh, so they probably don't want to encourage me too much. Dundee is selling okay. It's getting there, but it'd be good to have people there for my first ever show in Dundee. Aberdeen is selling better than the last tour show, but there's still time. The Dublin date has had to move to April of next year. I'm sorry, It was on the 25th of November, but there are a lot of issues, some of which I can't go into on the podcast, but it's going to be better at the venue it is at. So that's going to be on the 11th of April next year so if you go on live nation you can book tickets for that and then just looking ahead to 2024 i'm going to be in king's lynn i'm going to be in tring and tring it's just such a weird name for a place it's just an odd noun isn't it tring it just sounds like a verb doesn't it well it sounds bling it sounds actually i'm living in tring and i bet tring ain't that bling you know you're right it sounds like grime terminology oh she was tring mate she was so tring. Yeah, she was so tring. And then, then, then the next place I got uh, the one I was going to hype is Stroud. That also sounds. Don't be Stroud about it, man. You're being yeah, so Stroud. This sounds like top boy lingo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. It was so Stroud, man. Grimsby, Derby, the two Bs, Middlesbrough, and Newport. And I've had some venue issues here where I was wondering why Newport just had not sold like virtually at all. Well, it wasn't on their website or in any ticket places at all. So it's good to know that had that level of support. But the Riverfront Theatre, it is now on sale. If you go there, it's, it's quite a small capacity. So it was one of those ones, Tom, where I thought, oh, this will sell out in days. And then, you know, several months in, it felt more like a boycott of me than anything else. There's always one where you kind of go, what is with, I've got a tour, which I'm about to plug because you're going to let me do that. But Hull, yeah, no one is coming to see me in Hull. Why? Everywhere else doing all right. Hull, Jesus, who knew? Have you? Liked it off because they're very defensive of Hull as a place and it's an easy place to just take the piss out of. Well, I fucking will if they don't start buying those tickets. I can assure you. <laughs> there you go. Do it as a threat. Rather than say, please come to my show, issue a series of threats. So you are on tour from when until when? January, February and March next year, going all round the place, Hull. A couple of nights at Hammersmith Apollo, which is scary but always good fun. And then various places, check it out on my website. I'm not going to do what you do and just list all the ones that are badly selling. <laughs> just go straight on my website, jonathanpie.com. Jonathan Pye, Heroes and Villains. That's the name of my show. Heroes and Villains. I think it's good as well to get a tour in before there's a Labour government as well, because we're all going to have to... Tell me about it. <laughs> we're all going to have to have a good hard think about what we say next. All right, so we're going to talk now about something a bit more, well, sort of lighthearted. Richard Curtis, he of the sort of uh, global renown for writing, I'm not going to say the best rom-coms, I'm going to say definitely (laughs) the most successful. He was interviewed recently at the Cheltenham Literary Festival by his daughter, Scarlett, who is a director herself, I think. And in that talk, she kind of called him out for a number of things. One was 
toxic boss culture in some of his films. So the example of that would be in Love Actually. You know, Hugh Grant's prime minister, mm-hmm. he snogs Martine McCutcheon's character. That's apparently toxic boss culture. I would also say that's completely unrealistic movie bullshit that nobody should take seriously. How about that? It's just a stupid thing in a film. I'm with you there, yeah. It's a romantic comedy, so you've got to have a... You know, if, if no one pinches anyone's ass, it's not really a romantic comedy, is it? Come on. Yeah, yeah. She In the storyline, she seemed quite keen on him. There's a bit of My Fair Lady going on. So I, I think the toxic boss culture in that instance, I think we can dismiss that. There was another criticism she made was that Bridget Jones referred to herself as having tree trunk thighs, and she said that's not funny. I think that's okay, and I'll tell you why. And this is tricky as two blokes discussing this. But the reason is, is that all the women I've known in my life are unnecessarily harsh on their own opinions, right? So when you see a woman for whom there is nothing problematic about her appearance at all, being harsh about themselves in that that way, that's something that women will recognise and laugh at. I don't think it's necessarily a problem. Also, he said categorically, he's just said fat jokes just aren't funny anymore. Mm. I genuinely think he's wrong. I mean, I do, I do. And it's not like you have to go, oh, fat people. But I've definitely done some jokes about the excesses of wokery, kind of going, you you can't use the word fat because that's fat shaming, you know, and it's like, well, I mean, it's in the title, but I just find it, I, I don't mind him and his daughter sitting down at this literary festival and kind of looking back retrospectively and going, isn't it interesting that 23 years ago, you made a film and there's not a single black face in it. And isn't it good that we've really progressed beyond that? Because it's really noticeable yeah. to a modern audience and you wouldn't make those choices now. And you go, yeah, that's great. But for him to just turn around and go, I am so sorry. I apologize. You go, there's nothing wrong with acknowledging mm. that we've moved on and, and that times have changed. And that a joke that you wrote 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you would no longer write it. And that, that we have different sensibilities when it comes to casting, things like that. And in Notting Hill, there's a disabled character in it. Well, you, you'd hire a disabled character these days, but you didn't 20 mm. years ago. I don't think, I think apologising is sort of... Yeah, it's the easy way out. And all the money is in the bank. It's like recently Jamie Oliver saying, oh, I wish I'd never been famous. You go, well, I think a lot of people wish you'd never been famous, mate. But but the money's now in the bank. It's a very privileged position to talk on. And and if you wanted to, right, if Richard Curtis was going to apologise from stuff from his films, how about how annoying the little kid is in Love Actually? How about apologising <laughs> for that? How about yeah. apologising for the mate that rocks up at his best mate's gaff and basically comes on to his wife? What's all that? Well, that's toxic. I don't even know what level of toxic. That's beyond toxic masculinity. That's... Very creepy. It's creepy, is what it is. Very creepy. You remember that Boris Johnson advert when he did the same oh, thing? Oh, what held up the the, the Held up the signs. Sort of pastiche of love, actually. Richard yeah. Curtis should apologise for that. I'd take that one. He should apologise for all the spin-offs, all the pastiches and spoofs of that that have ever been done. And if you want a film that is, like, genuinely dodgy, let's have a look at The Boat That Rocked, okay? If you think about what's come out about, you know, older men and younger women and and the entertainment industry, The Boat That Rocked came after a a lot of those, and that is genuinely a film that could make you squirm a bit. I mean, I I think that, you know, there are other aspects of of rom-coms that are unrealistic as well. I mean, this thing of, I suppose now, one thing that might seem problematic going forward is how many of them use air air travel, right? Because now if you think somebody bursting through to catch somebody at an airport, they probably get somebody glue themselves to their legs, right? And then probably be tasered as a sex pest. And then, you know, then their flight would be cancelled as well by the time they got there. 
Although it does sound like a better film than Love Actually, what you just described. It's sort of Love Actually, Die Hard. I mean, that would be the rom-com I'd want to see, was where the mad dash to the airport was basically more about the complications of flying these days than <laughs> than really the declaration of love. I mean, just got, I mean, you'd be shot with rubber bullets. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I think that there is some stuff from our comedic past that is worth kind of revisiting and, and looking at there's a small band of, of, of comic content that you think okay that was out of order but i really think it does that an injustice tom when, when people are just apologizing because they love their daughter i mean i bet you any money there's there is this thing of like dads get to a certain age whatever their daughter says he'd be like oh dear oh dear i didn't i didn't realize dear is this, so yeah. is this embarrassing for you dear among all your posh friends that you only know because i sent you to a fucking private school with the proceeds I mean, like I say, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to have a discussion about it. And he did say that because he's from this rather sort of privileged, privately educated, white, rather affluent background, that he felt kind of odd writing characters that were kind of... I mean, he said that, you know, he wouldn't be able to do, say, you know, a poor black guy justice. So he kind of stuck with the Hugh Grant kind of characters. Well, that's what people say on the progressive side is write what you know. And what he knew was loads of very posh white people. Exactly. And I'll tell you something else, Tom, just the closest as I'm getting on a bit of a rant. If my son ever hears this, I love you dearly, son. But if I do well in my career and then by the age of 28, you've got me on a stage and you're trying to take me down for the things that I wrote and did that put bread on the table, you'll be out of that wheel before you know it. <laughs> Tom Walker a.k.a. Jonathan Pye. Thanks so much for coming on the show, mate. Just remind us what the uh, tour is called again. It's uh, Jonathan Pye, Heroes and Villains, and you go to my website, jonathanpye.com, for tickets. Would you, for me, consider renaming it Jonathan Pye, I best do this one before Labour get in? It's Jonathan Pye, please don't call an election before the end of March. (laughs) That's what it really is called. Brilliant stuff. Thanks so much uh, for being on the show, and we'll be back next week with another episode. Most people think. Most people think. Most people think.